You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Your popular program, Legal Talk, and Legal Talk is a program that is uh, appearing on Marcus Sahaba, the voice of the Ahl Sunnah Wal Jama'a. Let's welcome uh, you and uh, Senior Attorney Ashraf Isuf with a hearty Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And alhamdulillah, Senior Attorney will be discussing many issues, and uh, one of them he'll be highlighting is how legal or illegal is your legal tender. And you think, hey, I'm legal, but you'll get to know the only legal thing that's legal is the Noble Quran. The only thing that's legal on this earth is divine decree. And perhaps others, yeah, they have some problems. Senior Attorney Ashraf Isup, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me how you're doing this fine, beautiful evening. Alaykum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Shafat, alhamdulillah. I am very, very well on this beautiful, fine evening, as you've put it. Again, very, very thankful that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us the opportunity to celebrate another Eid, a very significant Eid, and another Juma immediately thereafter. So very grateful for all of these great, great blessings. Apart from the other blessings that we have, we have warmed, we have food, we have shelter. We have no fear. You know, we, we generally, you know, if you, if you compare fear around the world today in whatever, whether it's war-torn zone or floods in India, as somebody was saying to me today, uh, or the difficulties that you find yourself in other parts of the world, uh, air pollution, for example, Shafat, very very important regarding conversation, uh, conservation, um, flooding. So I'm very grateful for all, all of the blessings and very, very little problems that we have in this day and age, at least in our part of the world. You know, Allah, uh, Allah bless you. And you, uh, you know, you remind me so much of the eyes of the Noble Quran. So which is it of the favors of your Lord will you deny? And the answer is a resounding, resounding none. And then you gave, yes, you know, Shafat, we've got these favors and you make a lot of shukr. Shukr and sabr are wonderful things. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really privileged to have a brother of your stature on my side, you know, on, in our team. And also, you know, Ashraf, uh, thinking about how the world is run and, you know, why is it that, you know, the bankers of this world, most of the bankers of the world, uh, the youth system of this world, uh, has been run by the Yahudis? It's mostly the Jewish bankers, the Jewish lenders. And it seemed as if uh, up to 1920, uh, the Christian world or the uh, Pope or the Catholic Church was totally against Riba, Ashraf. So, Shava, that's an interesting question. Let me not start by saying uh, that it's the Jewish banker or this, but let's go into the history of how it came about, Shafa. And banking is enough. This is for this conversation or this part of it. Talk about how banking. So, there was a guy called Goldsmith. Prior to that, he was the blacksmith. The blacksmith was a man who knew how to use iron. And in the village, he created 
from iron a safe that he could access, you know, unbreakable. So naturally, with valuables lying around, especially gold, people would either find their own way of storing it or hiding it, but it was always like kind of very flimsy and it was removed. Then here comes the blacksmith and he starts, he creates this book with iron. And he then creates a vault. And lo and behold, the people say to him, hey, Mr. Blacksmith, here's my 10 ounces of gold. Please keep it. Now, how is Mr. Blacksmith going to know your gold from mine, Shafat? So he, then he gave me, he gave you a receipt. He says, receive 10 ounces of gold from Shafat for safekeeping. Ashraf comes the next day, receive 10 gra uh, grams of gold from Ashraf for safekeeping. After a little while, people realized, but hang on, we don't have to take our gold out. And when Ashraf buys from Shafat, pay him with that gold, then Shafat goes and he puts it back and he gets a receipt. So, able to bear a receipt, payable to bear a rose. So you would you appreciate that the early checks were this kind of where on your checkbook you had to error. And in the same way that the check was then given over in payment, the receipts were given over in payment. So now people were not removing their gold. The gold was safe. The blacksmith became the treasurer and he started issuing receipts. After a while, he realized, hang on, man. At any one time, there's always like 90% of the gold here. People don't remove it. So he went in his back room. He started printing receipts. So then the receipts were... The receipts became the means of payment. Now, at any stage, he always had 10% liquidity in case somebody came and said hey i'm now finished business here yes my receipt give me my 10 uh, grams of gold back and he realized that that he only had to keep a very limited amount of liquidity believe me shafat since about the 17th century around 1688 or so that receipting system of gold and the liquidity that the bank has to keep and the banking and lending ratio is the same at present day. So banks take your deposits. They do not have to keep the 100%. Then they will take 10% liquidity and then 90% is in their possession to loan out many and they earn in. So you can see nothing has really changed in the last five centuries, six centuries, maybe seven. The formula is the same. Regard to bank.
that a system like that, where you had to have, in terms of receipts, so much of physical assets, we know that was liberated in 1973. Principally, the US dollar was pegged to the gold reserves until 73, where Nixon now decided that as a temporary measure, the gold, the dollar will be removed from the gold standard. The temporary measure up to this day is still temporary, but then he nailed it. You see, in the same way, Shafat, that the Protestant movement broke with the Catholic Church renunciation of interest or usury, the Protestant movement under Calvin Klein issued their equivalent of a fatwa, and he presented that treatise on the door of the Brandenburg church in church in Germany, and the Protestants, you can hear it in their term, they protested against the Catholic church for various things, but principally in regard to this. And then they legalized usury, saying that they called it a profit as long as it was a very small amount, like 2%. So that was their justification of breaking from the uh, Catholics' opposition to usury. Now, the equivalent of that for me is that Nixon pinned for me on the door of the Kaaba the ultimate um, let's say, protest against riba when he got the Arabs to do all their transactions of a very valuable commodity of oil only in the US dollar. So, so that was the, if you can imagine the, the magnitude of, of how things had shifted. But make no mistake, it was not only in 1920 the Catholic Church renounced it. They, they had already invaded the Catholic Church pro protest against Riba long ago. I mean, the Vatican Bank, Vatican is a city-state on its own. It's a Catholic institution. It has a bank. So <laughs> you can imagine how deep this thing goes. But let's forget the Catholics. We've got our own difficulties. The, the protest against Riba in the Muslim world was broken down when the Egyptian post bank, post savings bank, started giving interest on savings years and years ago in the 1900s already. So that was the first chip of, um, it's not that Riba didn't uh, appear before, it did. Um, but I mean, in terms of it being formalized and, and recognized and legalized, until the 1980s, Shafat, there were very few so-called Islamic banks and Islamic scholars and riba, I mean, uh, Sharia-compliant uh, pro protocols and programs and, you know, it's oh, just, just a smokescreen. Then comes the tragedy in the Muslim world when so-called national and international ulama started legalizing riba 
through Islamic banks. And I mean, it was a real tragedy that we in our own country had the misfortune witnessing hand in an institution called the Islamic Bank of South Africa. The tragedy is that if you look at their founding statements and their documentation, it was underwritten by the ulama organizations of this country. And the litmus test of that failure came when thousands of depositors lost their money and they were paid out a pittance, a maximum of 50,000 rands each at the behest of the Reserve Bank. So there you could see there was a run on the Islamic Bank. There was not enough assets or liquidity to cover the, the claims and boom, it went into liquidation. So you can see, it's, you, you know, you can make your own deductions from this, that this is a system that operates many, many, operated many, for many centuries and continues to do so. So now the charge that, that, that you're saying is that it's the Jewish bankers. So, you know, it's amazing. Uh, there are firms of banks, JP Morgan and Rothschild banks, etc., that has Jewish family founders. But there are thousands upon thousands of banks that have private shareholding. Just look at how the Muslims in this country bank with one or two or three organizations. There's some banks registered in Zurich of Pakistani origin, and there are other banks uh, that carry Islamic or Arabic names, and they registered also abroad. But I mean, the pattern is the same. And I think it's uh, very clear that we must at least have the courage of recognizing and saying, this is not Islamic. Because there is no such thing as a bank. I mean, the two systems are completely at odds. Now, the other reason that banking cannot be Islamic, Shafa, is that the Islamic law on riba is very, very sophisticated. It was developed over a very, very long time. But the principle was the same. Sayyidina Umar said, or Sayyidina Malik, uh, Imam Malik said, uh, not, a, not a piece of riba to a blade of grass. You know, I mean, that, that is how, how it was. And there are lots and lots of writings about what is a riba transaction, what is a delay in payment, is credit allowed, is credit not allowed. But understand this, every time you bank your 10 rand, you're actually increasing the bank's ability to lend out money. Now, the moment you um, give your money, your, your hard-earned savings, and you put it in, you allow the liquidity ratio of the bank to go up and the, and the bank's ability to lend your 10 rand out 27 times. So you can see it's a multiple transaction there, each one earning interest. So the more you give, the more the bank is able to loan. The more loans you take, now your bank, your factory wants to expand and your shop wants to expand, and your house wants to expand, and you take a loan. The more you borrow, the more that commercial bank is able to borrow from the reserve bank. 
And that's when you get the banker's repo rate. What is the lending rate of the Reserve Bank to the commercial bank? Now, the Reserve Bank itself is in debt and it has to borrow in turn from the World Bank. And the World Bank, no doubt, is privately owned, as is the Reserve Bank. So you can see there's a very, very long, sophisticated banking system and networks. Now, in the modern age, Shafat, we see that there is not even the need for physical possession of money. It's merely an electronic transfer, electronic facilitated transaction, EFT, and, and you don't even, you don't have to physically have anything. And now we know we're in the age of crypto, uh, which is the creation of another form of currency on a computer, and that you know the volatility of these things, Bitcoin, et cetera, et cetera. Today, I think the South African Reserve Bank has now firmly intended on moving to a digital rand. So I hope in those just few, few sentences, I, you know, it's a very complex, very wide. I, I'm hoping that I've given you a grasp of this thing called banking. I tell you, Ashraf, you were absolutely fascinating and you sounded like a minister of uh, you know, finance to me rather than a senior attorney, but Alhamdulillah, brilliant indeed. And, uh, you know, what ran through my mind was uh, when, uh, uh, you know, Richard Nixon, when he converted, uh, you know, that uh, petrodollars or the uh, things into, you know, the, the, the Saudis had to sell the uh, petroleum and uh, the uh, crude oil in, in dollars. Uh, the Saudis were then treated like you know, for accepting that, like royalty, and uh, they went on a on a buying spree. I mean, when they got the money, they virtually bought off London, and they went and uh, invested heavily in America and so forth. And uh, they still, you know, the, uh, the the Americans still look up to the Saudis as uh, someone uh, that you know is a, a milking cow. I mean, uh, maybe a cash cow is is a better term. Uh, Ashraf, your thoughts? I wouldn't use the word look up. I think they would look down on them. You know, a cow mm. is is lower than a human being. Yeah. Okay, well and, said. And I mean, uh, you know, they, they've, they, they've got the Arabs where they want to. I mean, people have just gone to Hajj. They're still coming back. They booked the Hajj in dollars, man, Shafat. You know? Mm. The credit cards were facilitated through all these international banks. There's fortunes made out of the Muslims. And the poor, you know, the ordinary Muslim, he's oblivious, completely, completely oblivious of these very, very important things that affect our relationship with our Creator. We are fully immersed over our eyeballs in the filth of riba. We have fully succumbed to a system that says there is a national government and you belong as a citizen to this or that state and you, you're a Saudi, and that is a Pakistani, and that is a Bengali. So we've, we've totally obliterated the uh, notion of one ummah. 
one authority, one uh, currency, one system, one government. And now we into this thing fully, fully. I am telling you tomorrow you're going to have an Islamic bank that's going to come up with the Islamic crypto. Shafat, it's coming. Then people will scramble for fatwas and that one will say, hey, and this one will say, no. Now, understand this, Shafat. The bank took your 10 rand. It then kept one rand. That means it had nine rand to borrow. But do you think it stopped at nine rand? It didn't stop at nine rand. It then borrowed at 11 rand, but the 11 rand was a zero entry in its books. Shafat, it created money from nothing. That is how money is printed today. It is not printed with a backing of gold. It is simply printed on the printing press. Now, Alan Greenspan, the ex-Fed chairman, chair of the Fed, he said we had the printing press. So uh, Biden, Obama and all of these cohorts were giving out uh, something like $12,500 per citizen uh, per head in the US by simply printing it. So if there is no other proof of riba, then that it is haram to create something from nothing. And you, you know, ask all the clever ulama, they, they know about these things. Uh, I, you know, I don't have any deep knowledge. That is it riba when you give something from nothing? They will all answer yes. The second question, show me in Arabic the name for the word bank. It, where, where is it? They'll say it's a Beitul Mal. It's not a Beitul Mal. The Beitul Mal was never a bank. You never went and deposited your money and expected growth. Or, you know, as they dress up these uh, sophisticated Muslim transactions, oh, okay, you want this car, um, I'll pay for it and you pay me back. And uh, it is it is yours, you know. But I'm the real owner, you know. You know, it's all all a sophisticated smokescreen. For me, what is shocking is how the people of knowledge about these things are silent, if not complicit in these things. Because it's it's almost we at the stage where you say, tell us about everything else, the bread and the coke, but don't touch the money. And that is our biggest problem, Shah. Yes, Ashraf, and uh, you know I recall our Mufti A.K. Hussein uh, being very vociferously against uh, so-called the so-called Islamic uh, banking system and so forth. In other words, uh, when uh, you know they say they don't deal in uh, in in riba or interest, but you find that uh, for an Islamic bank to work, it's always affiliated uh, to mainstream banking. And, uh, you know, if they are uh, you're buying a car from them and they say, yeah, you know, uh, this is for services rendered or for, you know, uh, the, the service that we give. And that's why we have to add on. And uh, sometimes uh, some of them have uh, complained to me, Ashraf, and said, you know what? We seem to have uh, seem to pay more with the Islamic bank than when we're buying with the mainstream banking, you know, with the HP and uh, so forth. So, uh, What's your take on that, Ashraf? Well, 
I mean, we know the truth, right? It's a smokescreen, man. We can't. We, mm. There's no equivalent of the two two systems, you know. The fact that an alim stamps it doesn't make it right, man. And in the same way that the Protestants overthrew the Catholics' opposition, it's in the same way that these so-called ulama and uh, Islamic bodies overthrew the 14, 1500 years of opposition to Riva by a stroke of a pen. So they basically just sold out their, their deen for a few pence. Uh, in a way, no different from Judas, who sold out the Christ for a few, for a few shekels. Uh, yeah. You know, and then we wonder why, how, how come we can't, you know, we can't, we can't progress. We, we, we have, we, you know, we're floundering. <coughs> we also, <clears throat> we are stunned, you know, when, when we look at all of these things and we see poverty and we see neglect and we see wastefulness. As you just pointed out, there goes the Arab in his plainful load of money um, on a shopping spree to London where they close the doors. He doesn't buy one dress. He buys the whole floor. How is that possible when, when people are starving? Um, where is the sunnah in it? Where is wastefulness? Very importantly, Shafat. This is the, the question that must keep us up at night. Where is the zakat on the income of the oil revenues from around the Muslim world? I'm not just talking about the Arab oil wealth. I'm talking about the entire Muslim world's income from what Allah has put in their hands and under their feet. Whether it's palm oil of Indonesia or the gold of uh, Sudan, or the um, the uranium of Morocco. I mean, wherever you cast your eye, Allah has blessed Muslim world with wealth under their feet. And the oil, the Arabs didn't do a thing. It's there. It was there. It's still there. And uh, where is the zakat? Let, let's say, for example, we cannot now overthrow the thinking on riba. Then where is the where is the the faraid that purifies your wealth? You know, one of the uh, one of the um, beliefs, or, or, or not principle, not beliefs, but principles of faith, is zakat, and zakat is purified, purifies your wealth, right? That's what we teach our children. Now, let me let me give an example of how important this is. You see, we we've simply reduced everything to you know simple uh, simple calculations. We say it's two and a half percent. It's two and a half percent of your personal assets held over a year, but it's not for you to calculate. The sophisticated system, uh, and Sayyidina Omar showed it, that when your zakat was taken, the, the ayat is take, khut. And he then made a dua for you because at that moment you, you became pure. Your, your wealth was purified. You were purified. 
he gave you a dua and, and he took it. So the, the, the Amir takes the zakat. Sayyidina Abu Bakr was very determined not to allow the fitna after the Nabi to spread, where certain Arab tribes refused to hand over the zakat. And then he said, now look, that's it. I'm putting them to the sword. And uh, then he did it. Even said, now Umar didn't understand it. You know, he tried to stop him. He said, not if they withhold a halter's neck of an animal from me, then I'm going to deal with them. Now, if that was the Sunnah, and now it is obviously the Sharia, the Sunnah is carrying it out. The Sharia is that it's a it's a pillar of Islam. I just want you to do a good, quick calculation, Shava. We're in 2022. Uh, let's take a good year for Saudi Aramco. Let's say it was uh, 2019, just before the uh, COVID. Now, Saudi Aramco is one company, and Saudi Aramco has got partnerships with, let's say, British Petroleum, BP. Saudi Aramco's and BP's one oil field uh, posted a turnover of say 30 billion dollars. Now the rule on um, things from below the ground and above the ground that are not personally like, it's like sheep and agricultural products and things from under the ground, it's not two and a half percent, it's 10%. So you have 10% zakat accruing from one oil field of Saudi Aramco and BP. Sure. So I'll just, to a quicker, it was $3 billion. $3 billion, just one oil field for one year, 2019. So you can multiply that. And now you tell me, Shafat, what is the zakatable income due to the Muslim world from the wealth of the Muslim world? And then you tell me, can we possibly, possibly have poverty, suffering, malnutrition, refugee, tense. Can you have this? I mean, you know, we, we would we would have had an excess of zakat and then we would have given it to other categories of recipients in the Surah Tawbah, the, the eight categories. Amongst those are those whose hearts are inclined to the deen. Can you imagine what a disservice we've done ourselves by simply ignoring the fallen pillar of zakat? This is a collective responsibility. This is not waiting for somebody else to make it happen or to do it. We say we're giving zakat. It's not that you give, it's taken, as I pointed out. And secondly, in, in it being taken is a purification of the wealth that you have left. Can you imagine how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have turned the fortunes of the Muslims if we just did what he asked us to do? There is just food for thought on how the two uh, go hand in hand, how riba has destroyed zakat and how zakat is no longer fulfilled in its pure form. You know, Ashraf, the information that you're sharing with us this evening, is it all your research, is it all your reading and all that you have done? And I'm so grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that, you know, we get a man with your knowledge 
sharing this with us. And Alhamdulillah, and as I said, we have a podcast that uh, can be recalled 24-7, you know, wherever in the world they are, uh, people can listen to it. And here you are documenting these facts. Did you ever give uh, this, uh, you know, lecture to anyone else? Or, you know, did you uh, address a symposium on issues like this, uh, Ashraf? No, I haven't, uh, Shafat, but I, I had the good fortune of meeting my teacher when I was still a student, uh, the late Dr. Sheikh Abdulkader of Sufi. He passed away, Allah grant him Jannah, he's um, buried in the Cape. And um, I, it took me a long time to even understand these things. But once uh, it was, it was like became apparent to me that this made a reasonable amount of sense to me. I basically knew that uh, that these were the um, problems facing the woman and these are possible solutions. So it is, I don't take any credit. I had a brilliant teacher, a sheikh, and the amazing thing is he came from Kufar, so he understood it. And then he simply showed us, look, this is what is going on here. Um, this is not to say that this is a hidden knowledge. It's it's a vastly open open subject. It's there. Um, you know, it is there for people to research and have a look at. Then he attracted a young man came uh, called Umar Vadilio, a young Spaniard that I had met. They just came to Islam that time in 1984-86, and um, he was studying uh, engineering at the University of Barcelona, and. Again, I had the good fortune of meeting him, and I learned from from Umar, who's a great uh, authority on these subjects. And you can like look at his books and follow up and read up if you want. Uh, but it's all there. Um, so I guess I, w- I was lucky in in finding uh, the, the 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 sheikh uh, of great uh, of great knowledge. Yeah, you are blessed indeed. And uh, well, Ashraf, I tell you, you know, we have advertised the program extensively. And uh, mashallah, a lot of questions had uh, come through. I'm going through one that uh, Khalid Sosiwala has sent. He says, uh, I'm an Indian uh, South African now. I want to know why did Modi ban 86% of the Indian currencies in 2016? It put billions of Indians in panic mode and many died. And I came to South Africa. Mashallah. So prosperous year. Uh, Khalid Sosiwala, quite prosperous year, Ashraf. Your comments. So there's two parts to this question. And you'll find it happening all the time. Uh, so so what happens once they print paper money, they need to then at some stage flush it out. So Modi did exactly that. You know, he wanted to flush out all the, the, the cash that was hidden and replace it with another form of paper currency. And obviously the people that held on thinking that paper was money and that wealth was was uh, stored in that form were obviously now taken over by uh, by panic and, and they died because they couldn't use um, what they had worked for. So that's another great principle in Islam is that you can't hang on to savings and banking and you got money is always in circulation you see 
money is there to be used. Money is, uh, is, is worth something if it's used. Um, now, it's come to South Africa, but here also you had a number of change in banknotes. I see the Bank of England has now decreed that at the end of September 2022, they will no longer accept old uh, UK banknotes. So again, you're going to see a scramble of people now take, taking out all their stuff that they had hidden and trying to flush that money through the system, you know. So I don't know too much about India, but I know what Modi did was in order to, to make sure that people were not hoarding um, their money. And Shabbat, let, let's not be mistaken, India was known, not particularly amongst the Muslims, but other, the other uh, religious groups. There were certain communities, and we all obviously come from India, our roots are there, that were expert moneylenders. I mean, it's, 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 it's shocking and it's amazing that uh, money lending was a big, big part of Indian existence. The other tragedy of India is, especially with the farmers, if you couldn't pay your loans, well, you, your cattle, your children, your grandchildren, you are forever in servitude of the lender. It still exists up to this day, unfortunately. So, good luck to the gentleman who called in or wrote in. Uh, he's found success in South Africa. For me, success is only um, really something uh, valuable if we, in turn, observe strictly the zakat. So I wish every Muslim great success because from that is the taking of the compulsory zakat to purify the wealth because zakat is created as a vehicle for change. So it helps the one in need, the one traveling free Sabirila, the one collecting it, and the one in debt, that is very important, Shabbat. You now the one in debt is, is everywhere now. So um, the miskin also has their, their bit to it, but as I say, the rules of zakat is very sophisticated. It's taken by uh, the one in authority and it's distributed by the one in authority and it's not given, Shafat, let me make this clear, to an organization, APTY, ACC, A Trust, A, it's given person to person, it's not given to a third party. Secondly, any zakat organization that is sitting with the bank balance has got something to worry about. It is immediate, it is given immediately. It is not saved by the uh, so-called organizations. Third, you can't buy your zakat, take your zakat and say, oh, I'm buying zakat parcels. There's no such thing. So there we have it. Yeah, you're calling a spade a spade there this evening and you know, you're making those points where today, you know, zakat is taken by uh, I've just said organizations uh, that have, uh, you know, you'll get tax exemption and you'll get government uh, exemption and so forth. Uh, you know, we have really made a mockery of this institute, uh, the institution of zakat, uh, Ashraf. Now that is concerning, Shavad. But uh, 
it's never too late. Maybe we didn't know, maybe um, the ones that we look to for knowledge also didn't know. It's never too late. I mean, now that we know we've got to put matters right, it's as simple as that. Because Allah subhanahu wa is most, most gracious, most forgiving, most merciful. Your problem now is once you know, you can't hide behind your ignorance. Because now you have to you have to do something with the knowledge you have. I tell you people, yeah, it's a dire warning coming to you, you and me via our senior attorney, Ashraf Isuf. Allah bless him for that. Naeem says, uh, in our country, only 11% of the population pay their taxes. Is the government getting its uh, pound of flesh with taxes on fuel, alcohol, food, electricity, water, etc.? Uh, et Just a downright greedy. How do you respond to Naeem, uh, Ashraf? You see, Shabbat, I, I don't know if he's talking about just direct taxation and the three million tax um, taxpayers that are on SARS database. But no doubt everybody else is taxed either through fuel or VAT. You know VAT, when you go and pay, when you buy stuff? Yeah. yeah. So just a, a clutch of uh, basic food stuff is exempt, but everything else is vatable. Every service is vatable. Uh, when you buy clothes, it's vetable. When you buy tires, it's vetable. So even the poor are dragged into the net in, in one way or another. So it's, it's not that, you know, the others are getting away from it. One way or the other, you're paying it. You're paying it through toll roads now. You're paying it through uh, TV uh, uh, licenses. One way or the other, you're going to be paying and access of the basic service and that goes towards taxes. Somebody did an exercise now regarding the fuel price, for example. And a huge part of that is uh, taxes and levies. And we don't know what happens with taxes and levies. Uh, in the same way, we don't know what has happened to the relief funds that was promised to gov by government. We don't know what has happened to, well, you you know that we just incurred a $7.8 billion debt from the World Bank for our COVID vaccinations. That has to be paid back, Shafat. How are we going to get, how is the government going to collect this? Yeah, we had to pay, some had to pay for, for the vaccines and others didn't. It was free, but nothing is free. You know, they say there's no free lunch. So one way or the other, kicking and screaming, uh, we're going to have to pay. I also need to add, Shafat, this is not unique to South Africa. It's all over the world. The rank and file of citizens carry the burden of payment. So another good example in history is that there was a king that wanted to fight a battle and he didn't have the money. So here comes the bankers and they simply issue him with credit from the Bank of England. Say, oh yeah, you wanna go and fight? Uh, here's your credit. Okay, what are you gonna do with the credit? No, I need to buy arms. Yes, but arms goes with soldiers. So the mercenary, the soldier is a mercenary he was then sold or he was paid for by, he was paid by the king, but the king 
took a loan. And the king went to fight a war, and either he lost the war, won his immaterial because he was already in debt. And then he said, oh gosh, now how am I going to pay you back? And they said, oh no, no problem, just levy a tax on the general population. And they will help you to pay your debts. There's by some measure this discussion that the Battle of Waterloo debts was only paid about five years ago. You can make your own calculations from there. What war costs and who do you owe money to? Uh, as you can see, the population generally bear is the burden of taxation. And in certain cases, the population are able to revolt. Uh, when there was a tax on beer, for example, in, in a certain time in, in Spain, well, the population arose against the, the king and said, no, 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 you're not going to tax our beer. This is ours. This is holy to us. And we will fight you. <laughs> so people know what causes they fought for, Shafat, whether it's beer or ginger beer. I mean, at the end of the day, they made their feelings known. You know, Ashraf, you talk about wars being funded, and it was originally the bankers that finance wars. And uh, this is where, you know, uh, the different groupings uh, had to pay to the bankers. And, you know, the American war was funded by bankers. You know, the North versus the South, or what was it? But both parties were funded by whom? The uh, Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, and the, the, the bankers of the day, Ashraf. Every war is funded by someone. The Second and First World Wars, was funded by someone. The prohibitive punishment against the Germans at the Treaty of Versailles made them lose both land and resources, and they had to pay back huge reparations. Obviously, for us, the First World War has a different tragedy. It completely dissolved the Muslim world because uh, Sykes and Pico had basically entered into negotiations with the Arabs to overthrow the, the Turkish Osmani Khalifat. And um, especially the Sheriff of Mecca, Hussein, um, of the Hashemites, whose family now is in Jordan, um, entered into treaties with the British. Uh, the French were in uh, Syria. Uh, and, and the other parts of the Muslim world was carved out between all of these uh, powers. Uh, there was also the French involvement in the Suez Canal, and the Suez Canal was also built with bankers' money. There's a nice anecdote that uh, between Berlin and Baghdad was a railway line, but um, between Baghdad and Vienna was another railway line that was built at great uh, cost of interest. And uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid Khan Rahimallah was asked to um, hand over Palestine in exchange for wiping out of the debt. Uh, and he said, no, it's not for me. Uh, uh, Hebron was made waqaf by the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I can't give it away. We know what then. Uh, what was the ultimate uh, 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 fate of Sultan Abdul Hamid and the rise of uh, 
uh, Ataturk, the father of the Turkish nation, and how he modernized it, and he removed all vestiges of old Islam. So you can see, I, I'm, I'm simply demonstrating the power of these um, institutions and how one has to reflect and see are we actually in accordance with what Allah has commanded? And if not, what is it that we need to do to fix ourselves up? We can't go around fighting everyone else, Shafat. We are a problem. We have to solve our problems. Absolutely. And as you said, you know, we have a divine decree. And if you swim against the divine decree, so you have to face the consequences. And these are some of the consequences that we are facing now with all these things are going haywire because we are not following obeying Allah and obeying his messenger. Rafiq says recently the Zimbabwean government has indicated a move to gold coin. A wise move indeed and perhaps a top currency for future investment. Rafiq getting happy. Hey, he's going to run to Zimbabwe where Mufti's uh, uh, Menk lives. <laughs> I mean, your thoughts there, uh, Ashraf? I don't know. I, I looked at it, but I couldn't find any credible evidence of that, Shabbat. Mm, I, I mean, it's, it's <coughs> you know, it's actually, as shocking I, as the I, Central Republic, uh, Central yeah. African Republic declaring Bitcoin as its currency. You know, it's, it's yeah. flesh in the pen. I don't know. I saw, I saw an article. I even read it. But uh, I was like, you know, so happy. I said, hey, hey, this is good news. So you say this was one of the false news that... uh, No, I couldn't authenticate it. I don't say it's false. But secondly, you know, it's not just a change in the paper currency to gold that's going to resolve this thing, Shabbat. We don't have an equal marketplace. We don't have a sheriff of the marketplace. I mean, the, the term sheriff comes from Islam where the a man was entrusted with seeing justice in the marketplace. No price cutting, no illegal goods, no fighting. Very interestingly, Shafat, let me tell you. Do you know there's no wholesale and retail price in Islam? You don't reward capital. It's all one price. It's not the man with capital that can buy 200 shirts and the man who can buy 10 is given a different price. Uh, because that's that is unlawful competition, and um, you know, in the marketplace, which was was which is the Sunnah of Medina, there was no booking of your space for for trading. Like you couldn't come and say, "Hey, this is my place," and at the entrance, and you know, no one else. So first come, first serve. And thirdly, very very interestingly, in the Islamic marketplace. Um, like I said, there was no uh, price uh, competition. There wasn't illegal sale of goods. There wasn't uh, illegal haggling. But very importantly, there was never rental charge for trading space. Rental was, it was rent free. Can you imagine now if you had this really free marketplace, Shafat? Let's say tomorrow in Durban, now you go, I don't know where, let's say to uh, the stadium. And everybody comes and they're able to sell their goods. And, uh, you know, there's equality in price. Uh, there was no cheating. The man returned his goods. Deposits. 
you know, you must re return the deposit to the de to the depositor. I mean, if you just get into the real sophisticated day-to-day -day running of the Islamic marketplace, you'll be very, very surprised how much justice you can find, how much ease of trade, <coughs> how much of baraka. <clears throat> I mean, it'll make a difference to many, many thousands of people's of li uh, livelihood. I tell you, Ashraf, uh, the information, there was a barakah flowing from the information that, that you had given us. And Alhamdulillah, unfortunately, time is uh, catching on. Yeah, I say, hey, come on, we're going to move on. But Ashraf, you were, mashallah, Allah has blessed you, eloquent, uh, you know, given us a food for thought this evening and, uh, you know, some uh, rectification that we have to do. Your parting words before we let you go. Yeah, so I just want to ask for forgiveness if anyone is offended by anything I've said. I've just tried to be uh, as fair as possible. Uh, secondly, we are in it together. We, we're finding ourselves more and more uh, challenged by not uh, keeping to the teachings. And uh, we know that the best thing you can do for another human being is pray for him. So I ask for your prayers. And as always, the heart of the Quran is the Yasin, a very, very important uh, surah. And people should continue doing that. Of course, not forgetting, trying to keep up the practice of whatever you read in the Quran. Very important. And let's do our acts of charity, our acts of feeding, um, our good, kind words and actions. Uh, pray for Allah's forgiveness and his guidance and pray for everyone and see how we can be of use to humanity. I tell you, Ashraf, uh, you are very beneficial to us on Marcus uh, Sahaba, the voice of the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. You keep uh, legal talk buoyant with uh, your fresh presence all the time and uh, with uh, your, you know, that warmth that you exude with. It really, really comes out on this program. Ashraf, you have a blessed evening ahead. Inshallah, definitely will be reading Surah Yasin. And inshallah, we'll talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to you and the listeners. Yes, sir, people, don't go anywhere. It's time for us to go for the Isha Azan.